She's the host of the Marilyn Dennis Show on CTV, co-host of the Morning Show on Chum 104.5, and now she's a podcaster. This is Marilyn Dennis Does a Podcast. Do you need a reason to have sex? Not, not many. <laughs> <laughs> not many people do, do really. Right, really? No, uh, if it happens, it happens. But, uh, as if you need a yeah. reason. Yeah, I've yeah. got five reasons right here. Why you, why you should have sex every day. Every day? Every day. Oh, I'm yeah. so behind. <laughs> preferably preferably with someone. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, gotcha. Your chance of getting a cold goes down. What, because of your immune system, you're making out with them and that sort of thing? Well, it, it releases more antigens like uh, immunoglobin. Oh, yeah. Honey, get over here. And I need y- some immunoglobin. <laughs> yeah. Because immunoglobin, globin. I think it's globin. Globulin. Immunoglobulin fights colds and the flu. Also, it keeps you looking young. Mm-hmm. Okay. Look at me. I must look like <laughs> Shrek to you. <laughs> the, that's, that's the Maryland line of the millennium. Yeah. It lowers your blood pressure and stress levels. That it does. And glaucoma. And glaucoma? As my memory serves me right. Really? Clear eyes. Beautiful. Skin looks good. Everything's great. Glaucoma? <laughs> I'm really? just making it up, Raj. Oh. Just go along with the program. <laughs> well, you wouldn't be as fussy if you had glaucoma, would you? <laughs> and that was my good friend and partner on the radio for 34 years, Roger Ashby. Roger Ashby, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Guess we get to work on the radio again, my friend. I know. This is fantastic. <laughs> I know. We're going to This is not. We're gonna do this more than once, let me tell you. I've, I've missed you so much. Uh, Roger, I, I know you so well, but for everyone who is getting to know you or have known you, you've had a great career. You've been a broadcaster for how long now? Because we're going into the podcast world, so you're still broadcasting. Well, I started in 1968, so what's that? I guess it's uh, it'll be almost 52 years. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah. and, and you started when you were 18 years old? I did. I started my first full-time job when I was 18, and I came to Toronto three days before my 20th birthday. Amazing. And we got to talk about the world famous Chum Radio in Toronto. Um, what made it so world famous? What, what was that? And you were all part of that. Uh, it had been established before you had arrived at 1331 Young Street. But tell us a little bit more because it is such a great history of broadcasting. Well, it was the first Canadian radio station to play top 40 rock and roll music back in 1957. There was also a station in Vancouver, but I, I believe Chum was the very first. And uh, they made a great impact. They had a great promotional team. They had uh, top-notch announcers. Uh, Alan Waters, of course, ran Chum, and he ran it very well. Alan Slate at that time, who would go on to own Standard Broadcasting, uh, he was the program director for 1050 Chum back in those days. So they, they made an impact. And then they had a little bit of competition from other stations in the city who thought, hey, if they can do it, maybe we can do it better. But nobody ever really did it better. What were the other stations? What were the other stations playing though? They weren't playing top forty. What were they doing? Well, nobody was playing top forty until Chum came along and started doing it. So CKEY, in an effort to compete, started to do the same thing. And they were a pretty good sounding station. They had some legendary announcers on there too, but uh, they just couldn't get a, a leg up on Chum. So um, the kind of music that you would describe as top forty for that format, what does that mean to people that are listening to this podcast? Well, it's uh, pop music, and pop, of course, is short for popular. So it was the popular hits of the day, some of which weren't rock and roll because uh, there really weren't enough rock and roll songs to fill out a station's playlist in 1957. 
So you'd still hear Perry Como and Frank Sinatra and Doris Day and, you know, the big hit makers of the early 50s as we merged into a more pure rock pop format as uh, the 50s uh, came to an end. So, um, yeah, it, it was the popular music of the day. So when you joined 1050 Chum in Toronto, 1331 Young Street, you did virtually everything. What was the first job that you had there, though? Well, um, I was the overnight announcer, and uh, initially I worked from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m., so I did a six-hour show. We worked six days a week in those days, including the morning team, and each morning when I finished at 5 o'clock, I had to go into the recording studio and record an hour's worth of programming, not just lay down my voice tracks, but actually record with music a full hour. So I did that for each of the six nights that I was on the air. So that on the seventh night, when I had a night off, we had six hours of programming. So I was wow. really on the air seven days a week, and that went on for months. Now, the all-night show, just to let everybody know, did you get to play the music that you wanted, or did you have to follow a certain format? Did you have any kind of like you know choices in what you played? None. None! None. No, no, it was it was very heavily formatted and rightly so. Um, you know, uh, people say, gee, why can't you choose your own music? But if you had half a dozen different announcers on the air each day, which most stations do, and they mm-hmm. all played the music they wanted to play. I mean, what would that station sound like? Nobody would ever know what to expect when they tuned in. Right. So you have you had to have a format. They called it top 40. And it was really the top 40 songs repeated over and over. That's the way it, it began. Right. Um, and you were kept very busy on the air too. I mean, there was no very little time for, and I remember the days too, that, you know, those songs were short, fast, lots of commercials. And if you had time, you got to go to the washroom. Yeah, hey. Well, you waited for uh, El Paso by Marty Robbins to come on. Cause <laughs> it was four and a half minutes. That was the longest song we had in those days. Wow. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, we were still playing vinyl records when I first started. So you had to put them on the turntable, cue them up. You had to get the commercials on the cartridges and get them in the machines. And I mean, there was so much that you uh, that you had to do. You really you were exhausted by the time your shift ended. Absolutely. But so excited when you arrived at the station. I know that's how I felt, too. And the stations I've worked for so excited to go and, and get the show kind of lined up and the things that you were going to say and talk over the song. It it was really exciting radio. It was, and it required preparation because you did talk virtually after every song. So you, you had to have, you have to, had to have something to say. It couldn't just be straight format lines. You had to show your program director that you were in fact preparing for your show. For preparing for your show, maybe preparing for another shift other than the all night show, which eventually turned in. Yeah. Like weekends. And then eventually that turned into a morning show for you. Yeah, and um, I did middays for a while when I first came off the all-night show. I did middays, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. for uh, two and a half years. That is a terrible shift, I have to tell you. No, that's the I, best I, shift I, going. you kidding I, me? I, I didn't like that shift. I was, I was, I was seeing everybody else out there. I like the all-night show better. <laughs> but that's my opinion. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a great shift in as much as you don't have to get up super early to get right. in. You know, if you're in there by 9.30 or 10, that's good. Yeah. And uh, you can be out of there by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So it's, uh, it's a pretty good shift. I ought to tell you, though, I love doing mornings. And I love doing mornings with you oh, uh, for as long you. as we did. I mean, uh, we had to have something going to, uh, to last that long. And I, I enjoyed every minute of it. I miss it. I get up now at 7 o'clock, you know, and I think, I 
I should have been up three hours ago. <laughs> and that's and you 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 stepped away from doing the Chum Morning Show. How many how many? Well, it's a year and a half ago, right? Yeah, almost a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah, and you're still feeling that way. I'm just. I'm. You listen. When I retire my jersey, I don't know how I'm going to feel about it either. But as both of us know, podcasting is where it's at right now. We're going to talk mm. about your wonderful uh, uh, thing on uh, iHeartRadio, your wonderful show. Um, yeah, that's you and I met in 1986. And for anyone who listened and still listens to Chum 1045, Roger and I, I, I kept giving out my information to program directors in Toronto. Two people answered the call. And uh, I finally got an interview with you uh, right after you were doing a morning show one morning. And then we went into a room and I auditioned as if I was doing a break with you. Am I, am I remembering this well? Oh, yeah. I, I remember it just as clearly as you do. Um, yeah. We had been looking for a, a female partner on the show for some time and, and never found anybody. I tell the story that we auditioned. Oh, man, we must have auditioned more than 100 uh, different um, um, broadcasters and actresses. But the problem was there weren't a lot of female broadcasters. So a lot of the people who did apply were actresses and they could act, but mm-hmm. they, uh, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't converse naturally on the radio. Um, so when you came along, it was almost, well, okay, we might as well see the next person. We've seen so many in the past and my God, I, I knew right away. So I think you did too. And so did our boss. It was, uh, it was instant chemistry. It was instant chemistry. And that's what made us last for 34 years. And I'm very grateful to that. Um, and you took in a girl from Calgary, Alberta via Idaho to be a part of this huge station. Um, we've met a lot of people along the way, but I want to really focus on you, people that would come in and, and visit. Um, and this is going to lead to the Roger Ashby Oldies Show, which is fabulous, Roger. Thank you. This is your, this is your new radio show on iHeartRadio. And um, the format is so good. I know it, was, it took some time to get it all organized and everything like that, but you knew exactly what you're going to do. So if, I'm trying to tell people about this show in that, let's see if I'm right. It's a history lesson. It's yep. music we haven't heard in a long, long time. Yep. You can't believe how interconnected some artists have been in the past. Whereas yeah. one has been a writer, one turned into a singer. I mean, it's everything. And then you pick a week and then you say, here are the top five songs from that from that era. Let's talk about what eras you're covering, by the way. Um, Mid fifties to early seventies, because the explosion for um, the first rock and roll wave really began around 1955. It actually began a bit sooner, but rock around the clock was 55. And that's designated by a lot of historians as uh, day one. Mm -hmm. And then I go up to the early seventies because things changed. AM radio started to change. FM radio started to take over the playing album cuts and things like that. So like, I kind of saw it off around 72, 73. Is that, is that, uh, with the FM stations, when we talk about them, they would play like, they would play an album cut that we would not hear on top 40 radio. And also when did the Canadian content stuff come in? Uh, that began 71, 72. Ah, okay. And we'll tell everybody what that's all about. Well, um, a lot of radio stations were not playing as much Canadian content as the industry thought they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, regulations came in. Radio stations had to play 30% Canadian content. And that would mean a song that was either written, music and lyrics, produced or performed by a Canadian uh, I was going to say in Canada, but that's not necessarily true either. So in other words, 
you only had to meet two of those four, M-A-P-L, okay. music, artist, production, and lyrics. So you only had to meet two of those four for it to qualify as Canadian content. So you could get some songs, for example, by uh, Brian Adams, who's a Canadian, of course. Right, right. And they then the song wasn't a Canadian because he recorded it in the States. The music and lyrics were written by somebody other than a Canadian. So he he only counted under one. He counted under artist. You know what I mean? So right. So you had to, you had to have two out of four, but. In my opinion, there were a lot of songs that got played in those days that really didn't deserve to be played because uh, we were forced to play them. We had to find 30% of our music from mm. 10% of the output because there wasn't a lot of Canadian records being made. Mm-hmm. So it was difficult to find 30% of your playlist from 10% of the output. And that's why that's why we heard a lot of Gordon Lightfoot and Ann Murray, you know, great artists. But right. uh, we got stretched thin there for a while. And then of course the industry picked up and here we are in 2020 and there's uh, the Canadians are number one all around the world. Oh, no kidding. It took a long time to cultivate, but boy, they really exploded. That's for sure. Let's talk about, um, you were in the music department, worked in the music department for a long time. That's why you know so much about music and also because you love it. You have the passion for music. There's some, um, when people would used to come in to let you listen to songs, let's just kind of go back in the day. There I see a room full of records and albums. There you are standing behind your desk, posters of famous people behind you. You know, the record rep would come in with 45s. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The record rep would come in once a week. There would be a a designated day, I think it was Tuesday at one time, and all the reps would come in, and they'd all sit in the lobby, and they'd come in one at a time to our office or to our music library. We'd listen to the new music they had, and uh, we'd give them an opinion as to whether we thought we would play it or not. We wouldn't promise right then and there that we would, but we'd have a discussion about it and uh, Mm -hmm. critique the music. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they all wanted to get their records played. Some did, some didn't. Now, let me ask you this. Now, you you picked a lot of the hits for sure that we now still hear on the radio. You're part of that group. Did you miss on anything that you remember? And then, oh, man, I should have picked that song, but they came hit anyway. Your um, hits and misses, Roger. Hits and misses. <laughs> well, there were, you know, you, you chose your music as to how you wanted the station to sound. There, there could right. be a song out there that was in the top five nationally but it just wasn't right for our station. It was too soft. It was too hard, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, and every once in a while you'd, you'd play a song that maybe you, you thought afterwards that wasn't a good idea and it might only be around on the air for three weeks. And after three weeks, we'd say, that's it. We can't go any further with this song. Yeah. And then there'd be songs that we'd miss too. Now, when the early eighties rolled around physical by Olivia Newton, Sean, you'll remember that as a huge hit. Yeah. We never played it. How we come? never played it. Why? Well, it was thought to be. I had that. to, and I didn't want to. But go ahead. <laughs> well, we felt it was a little lightweight. Mm. Uh, uh, we were headed more in a in a harder area at that time, ACDC mm. stuff like that, mm-hmm. and we just didn't think it was right for us. But in retrospect, you know, perhaps we should have should have played it. I think it turned out to be the number one song of the year in North America. I think it was. I think it was. And I still shake my head at that one. But anyway, and I love her dearly. I think she's wonderful. It's not one Mm -hmm. of her best, I don't think. But what, you know, resonates with people sometimes is I, I, I wonder about that and I think, okay, well, that's what the people want to hear. There were times though, sometimes when, when, when record reps would come in, they would give you a record. And because of the format, the way it was, sometimes 
there was a moment when, you know, you get the 45, you get the album cover, you get the extended play, but you would make your own, we, like radio stations in general, would make their own copy, their their own edit of the song. Am I right? Sure. Uh, There might be some questionable lyrics, some inappropriate content that we would cut out, or maybe the song went on for six minutes and we felt we could make it into a four minute song, you know, but I got to tell you the truth though, Marilyn, we we didn't really edit that many songs. We we only edited songs that we really felt needed it. And often the record company would have already made the edits before they brought it in, knowing that radio stations would want an edit. Yeah. At this point, this is your lead into the Ian Thomas story of Painted Ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Should I reveal that? Yeah, you know, Ian's got such a great sense of humor, you know. Rob Thomas's brother, great singer, great songwriter, but I just love him for his audacity and and his his just his spirit. Go ahead. Tell the story, Rog. Well, we we oh, I don't need to be telling this. <laughs> We used to edit some of the songs yeah. uh, and make them a little bit shorter so that we could play that many more songs per hour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'd edit them in such a way that the beginning and the end would be there, but something would be taken out of the middle. And if you weren't really listening that closely, you never would have missed it. So that enabled us to play more songs per hour. So one day, one day Ian Thomas came in, and we had edited a couple of his songs, and he came into the lobby and asked for me. and. I think I'd met him once before and I came out yeah. to the lobby and he looked at me and said, Roger, what are you doing to my songs? <laughs> so I, I had to level with him and tell him what we were doing. And, uh, but he, he was good natured about it. Uh, of course he was. Cause that's the way he is. And the song was, was it painted ladies? Am I right then? Was it? Uh, no, no. We what was that? Painted ladies. Um, uh, oh. come the sun maybe, or. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Such a funny guy. Listen, I love him. I love him just for who he is. He's such a great guy. Now, despite you know uh, that the, 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 those kind of funny stories, and shouldn't be despite that. That's what builds the whole wonderful mm-hmm. history of rock and roll and Chum yeah. Radio. Uh, you you did get to travel a lot, and uh, I am I am to uh, lead you into a story about going to see the Rolling Stones, which led to Fleetwood Mac and all that stuff. Or maybe it's the other way around. But you got to tell that oh. story. That's a that's a classic. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, go for it, Raj. Uh, in the late seventies, when the Led Zeppelin movie came out, ah. song remains the same. Uh, record companies chose the stations in large markets to say, "You can send one of your people over to England at our expense to view the new Led Zeppelin movie before anybody else." So I was the designated person to go from Chum. So I flew over to England, uh, settled in the hotel, uh, had a little too much to drink from the mini bar, <laughs> got up the next morning to meet the band and their manager, Led Zeppelin, uh, at a West End theater in London. So I went there 11 o'clock and the movie starts and, and there's me, the four guys from Led Zeppelin and their manager, Peter Grant, and maybe a record rep. And that's okay. it. Like there's seven of us in this theater that holds 2,000 people. Wow. And we're, all, and we're all sitting side by side watching the Led Zeppelin movie. Well, I was a little hungover and I fell asleep, which really <laughs> wasn't the best thing to do when you're watching a movie made by the people sitting beside you. <laughs> I don't think they noticed, but I, I remember. Uh, well, Led Zeppelin might not have noticed because they were real party animals too, right? And then, so here's what happened. You, you mentioned okay. Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to know about that. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, 
We go back to Peter Grant's office after we watch the movie and start drinking again. And some, some of those guys were pretty big drinkers. So we sat there all afternoon. I think um, John Paul Jones was the first one to leave. And then Jimmy Page and, uh, and uh, John, bon- John Bonham hung in. And uh, so we finished there and I go back to the hotel and I'm getting ready. Now the record rep says, we're going to see Fleetwood Mac tonight. Wow. So fantastic. What, what a day this has been. Yeah. So, so we freshen up and we uh, go to see Fleetwood Mac and we're backstage and I meet them all and lovely people. I know that, you know, Stevie Nicks and the other people really well, but mm-hmm. this is 42 years ago. This is and, where they're uh, very young, very yeah, young. We're, yeah, we yeah. were all, we were all young, you know, yeah. and, uh, and they were very nice. And then, a record rep came over who I hadn't yet met, and he introduced himself as Dave D. And I thought, Dave D. I said, Were you part of Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch? And he said, Yes, I was the Dave D and Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch. I thought, Wow. I said, I used to buy all your 45s when I was in high school. <laughs> so suddenly I'm enamored with this record rep who nobody really knows but me. No, I don't think Fleetwood Mac have ever heard of Dave D. Dozy, no, but they're Mick standing right, yeah, but they're standing, they're right, standing right there. And I'm enamored <laughs> with this guy, Dave D. <laughs> what a great story that is. Oh, my God. I can't even believe it. I can't even believe it. Uh, so it many fun. great people. It's so much fun. Yeah, well, you know, you always have such great stories. And I know one of your favorite people ever, uh, speaking of Fleetwood Mac and people that work together, is Don Henley. Yep. Uh, you got to meet with him. I think he, he's not, he's not going to be on this oldest show, but the great people that we get to meet uh, doing radio uh, throughout the years. And back in the day, we got to spend more time with them. That's for sure. But I'm going to mention some people that you have met. Maybe you want to comment on that. Uh, the Beach Boys. Oh, I met the Beach Boys uh, several times. Uh, yep. I met Brian Wilson uh, individually a few years ago, but uh, the Beach Boys in the mid 70s, um, we're playing uh, the CNE Stadium, and they were, they were still a pretty hot band in the mid seventies. And uh, Wolfman Jack, we had hired him to come up and and record four weeks of shows, and he would come up once a month and do that. So we'd have something to run each week. Well, he happened to be in our building at the time recording when the Beach Boys came to town, and uh, we. We told the Beach Boys he was there. I said, oh, we'd, we'd love to come up. Well, Mike Love ended up coming up. But I went down to the hotel and picked Mike Love up in my car, drove back to the radio in station. In your car? In your yeah. car? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I said, oh, sure, I'll come down and get him. <laughs> so I bring him up, and Wolfman Jack is in there. And uh, now he's live on the air, and Mike Love comes in. And the two of them go crazy because they, they didn't really know or didn't think they would see each other on this trip. But. We had such a great time, and it was always my job to look after Wolfman Jack when he came to town to make sure he got settled in the hotel and had everything he needed. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I Beach yeah. Boys, Wolfman Jack, that's my recollection. What's with Wolfman Jack? How did he, I mean, we don't have to go into the history of him, but why, why was he so special back in the day? Well, um, he was an early rock and roll disc jockey. I mean, we're oh. going back now to the early 60s, as you remember seeing in in the American Graffiti movie. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was broadcasting from Mexico back to California. And I guess they had a lot more freedom with what they could say and what they could play. And he just became, uh, he became a legend. He became an icon because of, uh, you know, his his style and uh, outrageousness. And then um, 
he, uh, you know, it's just, his time came when it was over on the radio and he did a few movies. And uh, when, when I met him, he was uh, doing all these shows for stations across North America. And he was a wonderful guy. His real name was Bob Smith. You know, he, he really was just a regular guy uh, when you got to talk to him. And then he had health issues and uh, he passed away far too early. Right, right. Other people that you've met, you've met, did you meet Michael Jackson? I met Michael Jackson and the entire Jackson family in 1971 when they came to Toronto. We were at the Royal York Hotel and I had yet discovered shampoo uh, and my hair was a mess. And I was growing this mustache at the time. I think I had about 12 hairs, couldn't grow it properly. <laughs> and that had to be the time that I got my picture taken with the Jacksons. Yeah. And then the same yeah. thing happened a couple of months later when Sonny and Cher came to town. <laughs> uh. And is that, some of those shots get uh, shown on uh, the chum charts because they they yeah. they were doing chum charts back in the day. People still send me chum charts. Six, let's explain what chum charts are all about. When did it start? When did it finish? Because they had some great pictures of some great people that visited the station. Uh, it started in 1957, and it was a little uh, paper chart that uh, kids would go to the record store and pick up once a week, and it listed the top 50 songs of the day initially. Yeah. And then it went right through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I think the last uh, Chum Chart was 1986. But they were, um, I've heard so many people my age, my era saying, oh, we couldn't wait to go downtown and get our Chum Chart, see what number one was and figure out what 45s we were going to buy at Sam the Record Man. You know, it was a little weekly ritual. Mm-hmm. I do remember it being in Pittsburgh, going by a record store and seeing all of the top 40 songs played by, I think, KDKA, I think. And then I remember like looking for a certain song, uh, Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves and John Lennon, uh, uh, War is Over, you know, all those kind of the, those songs. And that it, the process of doing that was so memorable, more than the record itself. You said to me a long time ago that people really catch on to music at a certain age, and that kind of is with them for the rest of their lives. Do you want to tell people about that? Your thoughts well, on that? Well, I, I believe that uh, you develop your tastes when you're in your teens, and maybe mm-hmm. even before your teens, during your teens. And as you grow up, you think back fondly to songs from those days because, you know, your life is as though I know it can be stressful for a teenager, but you're still pretty carefree at that time. You're living at home, you're in high school, you're having fun. And you remember those songs as part of your good experiences. And then you take that music with you. And then, of course, music changes and and you suddenly become an old fart. You say, "How, how do they listen to this music today? Well, you know, that's our parents said the same thing about us. So right. it, it's, yeah. it's generational. It is generational. Okay, talking about your show, which is so great. Uh, we're talking with Roger Ashby, and Roger's got a great show called Roger Ashby's Oldest Show on iHeartRadio and wherever you get any kind of music like that. I, I know we're on about 16 different radio stations. Uh, some are Bell Media stations, some are not. Okay. We do it through our syndication arm called Orbit. And... Uh, we're on a number of stations in Ontario. We're on one in Halifax. We're on one in Kelowna, BC. So, and then we have a toll-free request line, which is one eight four 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 fifty sixty seventy. Call uh, which it any I time. Called. Make a request. I called it. I called. I know it. you did. One, and your your one. song's coming up this weekend. I thought, gee, I hope I said, I said to your producer, Adam Karsh, I said, did he play Ramblin' Gamble Man by Bob Seger? He goes, yes. I went, oh, that's the yeah. one I love. Because that song was the Bob Seger system 
that's when he first started. And one of the little pieces of information, which you gave me a long time ago, is the late, great Glenn Fry was singing backup on that song. That's right. He was on that record, yeah. He was on that record because he was yeah. from that area. Um, so a couple of things from your show. First of all, uh, you've got this. This is great. Behind the Hits. Uh, you do a lot of research on that. Tell us a little bit about that. Thank you, Marilyn. I will. That's, uh, that's exactly what it says. It's the story behind a particular hit. So I'll take, um, you know, Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones or whatever the song may be and tell a 90 second story about it based on research that I've done. So that's and behind the hits. It's great storytelling. You know, I'll be on my bike. I'm on a Peloton bike in the basement. And Jim, as you know, Jim, well, he'll be upstairs on the second floor and I'll go, what? <laughs> I didn't know that would happen. Okay. So, I mean, I'm learning so much. It's a history lesson. Uh, the Roots of Rock, that's different in that what? Well, I go, I go back even further for The Roots of Rock. I, I can go back to the 40s for that feature and uh, find somebody like um, uh, Eddie Arnold or uh, right. Hank Williams, some of the country stars, or or even uh, Louis Armstrong. And I'll talk about their career and how their career got started and how their music influenced the rock and roll generation that followed. And then you've got the top five of the week, which is awesome. You'd pick up a, a week somewhere in the yep. past. But yeah, And then you do the top five. It's really interesting. Some of the stuff that you say about this song, some of them hang on, some of them only maybe mm-hmm. made in the top five and then they dropped. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I pick a different year every week to do that. Yeah, I love yeah. doing the research. You know, it's a history lesson for me, too, because mm-hmm. there's so much rock and roll trivia to learn. And when you start Googling it, and I go through some of the books that I've had for years that I've hardly ever looked at, I'm finding amazing information, I think. I think it's fun. I think it's so interesting, and even when you do double play, how interconnected people are and where they were at the moment. There's always a great story behind it. There's also these great stories about, you know, songs that were delivered as the 45, but the DJ flipped the song over to the B side and it became a hit. Some of them, uh, some of them were not true. Some of those stories, but one song that would be true of that, uh, somebody gets a song and then they go, that's an okay song. We're going to flip it over. Give me one song that, 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 that actually became a hit. Oh my goodness. I know. Am I terrible? I'm terrible for putting you on the spot like that. Um, I, you know, I, I can't think of something off the top of my head. I know there are lots, but I do yep. know that I mentioned El Paso again by Marty Robbins. That was yeah. four and a half minutes long. And the record company in 1959, 1960 did not want to release that song. And uh, he agreed to not releasing it, but he wanted it included on an album. So here's the case of where a disc jockey found this cut on the album mm. and started playing the heck out of it. And it got a lot of attention. And finally, the record company was forced to release it as a single. And it turned out to be one of the top songs of the year. That's, see, those are amazing songs. I know, I know you mentioned not too long ago, the late, great Kenny Rogers. You had a great interview with him mm-hmm. and how he talked about Ruby, don't take your love to town. And, yeah. you know, only X amount of minutes left on an album. Anyway, we could go on and on, Roger Ashby and I could. And we will revisit you. We're going to come back to visit you. So, Roger, once again, how can they make a request on your great show? Uh, the phone number is one 844 And uh, that'll get you through. Now, as I was saying, because I'm on in Halifax and Kelowna and also in Windsor, yeah. I'm, getting, I'm getting requests from Washington State, uh, hey. Michigan. Yeah, Washington State, yeah, and Michigan, and all a lot of the border states because they're listening to it on Canadian radio. You're going to get even more from being on my podcast. I hope. I, I hope, hope so. 
I hope so. <laughs> Roger Ashby, so good to talk to you. My friend, my dear friend that I worked on the radio with uh, for 34 years, not long enough, has a great show called The Roger Ashby Oldie Show. So many interviews, so much great music, some some treasures uncovered. We will come and visit you again. Take care, and I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, love your Marilyn. show. All right, I love, love you. your show, Roger, and I love you. Thank you, Mary. Your request is coming up this weekend. Yay! Have a song you want to hear? Visit iHeartRadio.ca for everything you need to know about the Roger Ashby Oldie Show. Marilyn Dennis does a podcast. New episodes every week. You can download or subscribe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 